0: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Tricycle's Editor-in-Chief. The day after the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012, Shannon Watts, a former communications executive and stay-at-home mom of five, founded Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Since then, the grassroots initiative has matured into a nationwide movement with over six million supporters fighting to end gun violence. Now the largest gun prevention organization in the US, Moms Demand Action has had major successes at the ballot box, on school boards, city councils and state legislatures, and in corporate America. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, Watts chats with co-host Sharon Salzberg and me about what it's like to work with communities afflicted by gun violence and how her Buddhist meditation practice has kept her in the fight despite Twitter trolls and fierce pushback from the National Rifle Association. Shannon Watson, Sharon Salzberg. It's great to be here with you both.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Hi, James. Hi, Shannon. It's wonderful to be with you both.
0: Yes, it is. So, Shannon, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about that day that Sandy Hook happened, where actually the day after, and your life pretty much changed after that. You went on to found Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense. I wonder if you could tell me what that day was like.
2: Well, I, at the time, was living in Indianapolis, and it was a very cold day in December, and I was folding laundry. You know, when you have five kids, it's kind of a full-time job, and (laughs) that's what I was doing that day, and I, I saw breaking news on my television, and so I sat down and I started to watch this tragedy unfold in a place called Newtown, Connecticut, somewhere I had never heard of. And like the rest of America, I was devastated by this tragedy. I mean, even now, eight and a half years later, that 20 children and six educators were murdered in the sanctity of an American elementary school is too much to bear. But for me, what was sadness quickly turned into anger because there were pundits and politicians coming on my television set in the hours afterwards saying that somehow the solution was more guns that if only those teachers had been armed, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And I knew nothing about activism or organizing or gun violence or even really the legislative process. I just knew that was a lie. I knew our nation was broken and I knew nothing would be done. And I decided I wanted to get off the sideline. And so the day after the tragedy, I went online thinking I would find something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which had been so pivotal to me as a teen in the, in the 1980s, really changed the culture around drinking and driving. And there really was just sort of one-off think tanks, mostly run by men, some state organizations, again, mostly run by men. And I wanted to be part of an army of women. You know, That's what I've seen get things done in this country, time after time, you know, everything from prohibition all the way up to the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And so I started a Facebook page, and that online conversation has turned into the largest offline movement in the country.
0: Apparently, you have over 6 million supporters now. It's pretty amazing when you started with a Facebook page with maybe, I don't know, under 100 followers.
2: 75 Facebook friends at the time. I was not really a social media phenom. But yes, now we have over 6 million supporters. We're actually larger than our opponent, the National Rifle Association, And we have volunteers in every single state, like myself, who wake up and do this work every single day to protect their families and communities.
0: Can you say a little bit about your work, what your organization does and has accomplished?
2: You know, I get asked all the time if I'm hopeless or I feel cynical because we haven't had this cathartic moment in Congress that I know we're all waiting for. But to say that this can't change is really to negate all of the amazing work that has been done in the last decade. First of all, Moms Demand Action started. We're mothers and others now. We also have Students Demand Action. And really there needed to be an opposing force that could go toe to toe with the gun lobby. But also we realized we would need to fight this battle in state houses and boardrooms and school board and city councils and really build the momentum on the ground that would eventually point the right president and the right Congress in the right direction, right? That's how most social issues work in this country. And not only do we have a 90% track record of stopping the NRA's agenda year after year in state houses, things like permitless carry, stand your ground, arming teachers, forcing guns onto college campuses, we've also now passed background checks in 21 states. We have passed laws that disarm domestic abusers in 29 states, and dozens and dozens of more good life-saving laws. We've changed the policies at hundreds of restaurants and retailers, particularly around open carry. We've educated people about secure gun storage. Over a million families have received our materials about keeping your guns locked, unloaded and separate from ammunition. And on top of that, you know, it's important to remember we're winning. The election cycles that we've had, we have in most cases outspent and outperformed the gun lobby, flipped the House in 2018, the General Assembly in Virginia in 2019, and now we have the presidency, the Senate, and the House. I'm very hopeful that this is the right Congress and the right president, but regardless, all of that work will eventually change where we are on this issue.
0: Before you were a stay-at-home mom with five children, you have a background in PR and communications but I read that you said that it wasn't so much that that equipped you for this, but being a mom. Wanna say something about that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I became hyper-focused when I had kids. You really have to be so that everyone stays alive and the trains keep moving. And on top of that, I realized the skill that I have, and I think it is in large part because I'm a mom, is that I can multitask. I can do a lot of things at once and do them really, really well. And I do think this ability to multitask and to be hyper-focused on the safety and care of your family and community is what often makes women, and particularly mothers, the secret sauce of advocacy. I'm not saying it's necessarily nature. Some of it may be nurture, that women are raised to believe that they are the caretakers and that's the role they should take on. But... We also have to be pragmatic. And when women are only about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs, only about 20% of all lawmakers, there are certain levers of power that we have available to us. Our voices, we're the majority of the voting public, our votes, and also our spending power. We make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And so those are sort of the pragmatic levers of power that we can pull. And when lawmakers see us show up, In the dozens or hundreds in our red Moms to Man Action shirts, they're either very, very happy or very, very afraid.
0: I wonder, you said, I wanted to work with other women in particular. I think of Stacey Abrams Mm -hmm. and what she accomplished and what you've accomplished reminds me of that in a way when you think of how public attitudes toward gun safety have changed so dramatically. You did talk a little bit about it, but how did you just come upon this that you really wanted to begin a movement that would be largely driven by women?
2: I grew up in upstate New York, in Rochester. We were raised to believe that activists were role models. So often, you know, on our field trips, we would go visit Susan B. Anthony's home or where Harriet Tubman went on the Underground Railroad or where so many activists, many of them were women, gathered to change laws from suffrage to prohibition and on and on. And so for me, I always wanted to work with other women. And when this issue of gun safety came up, to me, it was sort of the logical pivot. Mothers Against Drunk Driving had been so pivotal to me in the 80s, watching how they changed culture. It seemed overnight, but it really took them a decade. And when I became a mom, that is when I think I started thinking so much about not just the safety of of my own family, but the safety of my community. And I saw so many other women who had that same concern. And I also think you know, women are fierce when it comes to protecting their families and communities. And it seemed logical to me that women would be the NRA's worst nightmare, that if we banded together and we took on one of the most powerful, most wealthy special interests that ever existed, that we could beat them. We would be David to their Goliath, but ultimately we could beat them. And I was right.
0: You said something that I read: Gun owners are afraid that their guns will be taken away, whereas mothers were afraid their children would be taken away. So, is that sort of motivation that seems to have in part driven you?
2: Absolutely. There's this very vocal minority of gun extremists in this country who believe any law whatsoever is an infringement on the Second Amendment. That's a a perversion of the Second Amendment, and. When you talk about guns with average gun owners or even Republicans, they agree that there should be responsibilities that go along with gun rights. And I do believe there is a fierceness and a protection that women feel that, you know, if we lose our children, we have nothing left to lose. And so we aren't going to be intimidated by the death threats or threats of violence that we receive on a regular basis for doing this work we can't afford to be intimidated into inaction. And I think that's why we've been so successful because we understand that every single day, hundred Americans are shot and killed, 200 more are wounded and, and time is really of the essence.
0: Sharon, you've seen people who have worked with victims of gun violence and the burnout they experience, and you've helped them a lot.
1: I was so heartened Shannon by your message of hope. Because so many times, you know, it's exhaustion. And while I love the steps of progress that you listed, which were not often thought about, often it's just the frustration and just the sheer bewilderment, almost like how can people not see themselves in one another to the extent of not feeling something when you realize someone has lost their child? And and yet that's kind of existing, you know, this callousness that we see so much of the time. And so that can be really overwhelming. And I was going to ask how you find the ability to carry on in the face of all that, although you may have answered the question with your list of actual successful measures.
2: Well, I'm definitely motivated by our wins. And in fact, when we pull all of our volunteers, it's also what keeps them going. This idea that we are making progress and we have a motto called losing forward. So even if we lose, we know we have learned something so that we win the next battle. And I could give you so many examples of where that's happened. We also know this is a marathon, not a sprint. You don't get involved really in any social issue but in particular those that are led by a special interest without believing that it's going to take several election cycles many years if not decades to get the work done that doesn't mean you don't engage and you don't do it but just as it's a marathon it's also in many ways a relay race you have to pass the baton when you need to prioritize yourself and self-care or your family or your community. I've seen many people step away and take a break, especially during COVID, but they come back and the work will still be here when you get back. And it is important to remember that self-care is a vital part of any advocate's agenda, that you have to make sure you're making time for yourself and that you are recuperating and that you are resting because you can't fight this battle without making sure that you have those reserves.
0: What is self-care for you?
2: I would definitely say uh, meditation is a big part of that self-care. I actually take a Buddhist class every single week with Ethan Nickturn online and really enjoy continuing to learn and continuing to grow and, and making sure that my activism isn't everything that I do. I have a very wonderful and supportive husband who I enjoy spending time with, and we get outdoors as much as we can, whether it's hiking or just getting away from our computers and our Zooms for a while. But everyone has something that helps them decompress, and we really encourage our volunteers to find what that is. I think meditation is such a great tool for not just restoring your mind, but making sure you stay grounded And when you do receive death threats or trolls online or losses, that in many ways you see those things happening almost as you do your thoughts during meditation, knowing they're temporary, knowing they're impermanent, and knowing they go away.
1: So much in what you just said really struck me. Also, when you talked about death threats and trolls, I thought, can't we just disagree with one another anymore? Does it have to be this kind of hyper dramatic antagonism, you know, an enmity that seems to be brewing and it's not universal and not that a lot of it comes my way, but certainly not death threats thus far, but to whatever degree that happens, people say to me, you have to remember, these are not massive numbers of people.
2: Yes. I think that is so important to remember, you know, that this is a very vocal minority and When you look at polling around this issue, 90% of Americans, that includes gun owners and Republicans, support common sense background checks. And again, the purpose is to silence and intimidate people. So we just have to make sure that we're able to resist the feelings that arise when you are being trolled and people are threatening you. I never imagined as a mom of five you know, that I would have to travel with a security guard, use an alias, all because I think gun owners should have to have a background check. <laughs> it seems pretty intuitive and common sense. But again, allowing this vocal minority, these gun extremists to write our gun laws is how we got where we are in the first place. And so it's time to undo that.
1: My understanding is that there's a big difference between the common membership of the NRA and the leadership of the NRA in terms of positions about these things. And so it can seem even more overwhelming when you start to project that it's like a massive number of people when actually it's an empowered few.
2: It's a group of executives, just a handful of executives who have corrupted the gun lobby, who have used it to line their own pockets, and who have decided that American lives are less important than gun manufacturers' profits. And that's really how any special interest in this country has become corrupt. The good news is that the NRA is under investigation on many fronts, including being a foreign asset, including mishandling and misspending members' dollars, and I don't think they will ever return to the power they once had. And I think what we're watching right now is the beginning of the end of the gun lobby.
0: You know, you couldn't have picked a more formidable foe than the MRA. <laughs> I mean, they seemed, forget it, you know, a wall. And I love the idea of losing forward. I find that inspiring. But what I found even more inspiring was failure is feedback. Why don't you say something about that? Because Joseph Goldstein says struggle is feedback. Oh, Wow. Yeah. You're saying failure is feedback. So I I really love that idea.
2: Yeah. You know, when we started this, we knew that in particular in red states where the gun lobby was so entrenched that it would be really difficult to make headway and we would spend a lot of time playing defense as opposed to offense And an example I'll give is, you know, I would travel to Little Rock, Arkansas and meet with the same handful of very nice women, but the chapter never seemed to grow. I think people in Arkansas maybe thought this was a futile way to spend their free time (laughs) to work on gun safety, but what happened was the legislature passed a guns on campus bill. It sailed through the state house, the governor signed it with the chief lobbyist at the NRA standing by his side. And it so angered people in Arkansas, in particular women and mothers, that we grew exponentially overnight. In fact, we grew so quickly that we were able to immediately go in and carve out an exemption so that at least guns wouldn't be allowed in Razorback Stadium during tailgates where alcohol is served. Again, seems like common sense, it wasn't. And then the next year, Two of our volunteers ran for office for State House in Arkansas. They both won. One of them, a retired nurse, beat the man that put the guns on campus bill forward by 12 points. And then the year after that, they were able to stop, stand your ground, twice despite a Republican supermajority. Now, we've certainly had other losses along the way and we will have more, but we would never be where we are right now if we hadn't had that original loss on guns on campus. And I do think that's the story of activism. It's drips on a rock. It's never giving up and it's learning from when you lose so that you can win the battle the next time.
0: And with that, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back.
3: The annual BuddhaFest online festival is going on now through August 15th, presented by Tricycle and the International Buddhist Film Festival. This year's lineup includes 13 new Buddhist films, musical performances, meditations, and wisdom talks from favorite teachers including Robert Thurman, Sharon Salzberg, Joan Halifax, and Lama Sultum Alion. To stream the event 24-7 at your convenience, Buy your $30 online pass today at BuddhaFestOnline.com With your BuddhaFest Online Pass, you'll also receive an exclusive 68% discount on Sharon Salzberg's new 4-hour online workshop, Compassionate Action, The Fierce Heart in Challenging Times. Sign up today at Budafestonline.com. That's BudafestOnline.com. Now, Let's return to James Shaheen and Sharon Salzberg in conversation with Shannon Watts.
0: An important part of your agenda is empowering gun violence survivors by allowing them to share their stories and even run for office, which dovetails with your work, Emerge America, which empowers women to run for office. have you created spaces for them to open up and share their heartache and perhaps transform it?
2: Well, it's so important that we put at the forefront the stories of those who have suffered and experienced, borne the brunt of this tragedy in this country. And their stories are so impactful and they do change hearts and minds. And so we've really been doing that from the very beginning. And in fact, we created a survivor network within the organization, because when we go testify at state houses or go speak to corporate leaders, making sure that people hear the stories from people firsthand who have been impacted. And to me, survivors who get involved in this work are so heroic. You know, I've never been impacted by gun violence. And it's very easy for me then to do this activism without that added suffering and burden. And, and so to me, anyone who does this and is experiencing that grief is heroic. Um, one good friend that I made when I first started this work was Lucy McBath. Her son, Jordan Davis, a 17 year old black teen, was shot and killed at a gas station in Florida because a white man, stranger, said his music was too loud and opened fire into the car he was sitting in, killing Jordan instantly. His mother, Lucy, who lived in Georgia, Jordan was visiting his dad, and she immediately became an activist, grieving horrifically, and yet still knew that she had to stand up for other families and communities so that they would not experience the same pain and suffering. And I can remember we met on the phone. Jordan was shot and killed just weeks before the Sandy Hook school shooting tragedy. And I asked her would she be a spokeswoman, not really understanding what that even meant. We were just weeks old. And she said yes. And I always laugh because every time Lucy and I have ever had a conversation, I always say to her, "So when are you running for office?" thinking, "Oh, she'll, you know, run for city council or state house." And one day she said when I asked her that question, "I think I'm going to run for Congress." And she did. And she won. She now holds a seat held by Republicans for three decades. It's Newt Gingrich's old seat. And the first thing she did as a lawmaker was to introduce gun safety laws, which have passed the House now twice. And so I think it's such a good example of why it's so important, in particular for women, that once you get these skills to move not just from shaping policy, but to making it.
1: It's true, those stories are just the most impactful thing one can imagine. And I I remember I was invited to go to Parkland some months after the school shooting there and taught a day and met a number of people, you know, students, a few parents and teachers, and just honored them so much and did more and more work with them. And then we had a retreat up here in Barry for survivors of gun violence and sadly, by then, it was so many more people we could invite beyond Parkland. And so people came really from everywhere. And we had this amazing time. And I think that for many people within that community, they didn't often get together with the thought of healing. At least that's what they said. You know, it was more about making progress around certain issues. And One of the most unforgettable times was the last night of the retreat where we had a sort of open mic night, you know, and I thought, oh, this is going to be like a talent show or something. And, you know, people had guitars. And this one woman from Chicago got up whose son had been killed in a drive-by shooting. And she told the story about uh, they have a church where there are many moms who had a child killed through gun violence. And one day there was a knock at the church door and... It was Yo-Yo Ma. And he said, you know, hi, I'm Yo-Yo Ma. I heard about this church and this organization. And they didn't believe it was him. They thought, oh, that's crazy. And it was him. And what he did was he offered to create a piece of music dedicated to each one of their children. So he sat down and learned who they are. And I, I saw that that was a hugely important thing, that their child not be forgotten. That their child still had a voice through them, was still trying to make it a better world through them. And so he created a piece of music. So there were, I think, four people from that community at the retreat, and they each played a copy of that piece of music and passed around a photo of their child. And it was just this unbelievable moment where you got to see both the immensity of the loss and the determination and the clarity of these women. And then something else that you said made me think of the widespread ramifications in communities where there has not been necessarily a direct experience of gun violence. But I think for me, one of the most chilling stories about January 6th with the insurrection in the Capitol, I mean, chilling in the sense of poignant, was at one point, Nancy Pelosi was talking about her staff, which is fairly young. And she said, they locked themselves in the office and like hid under the table they knew what to do because they learned it at school. Yep. And I thought, oh, look at that.
2: The trauma that we experience as a country, even if you haven't been impacted by gun violence, you know, given that 40,000 Americans are shot and killed in this country every year, tens of thousands more are wounded, we're all impacted, including those lockdown drills. We've talked a lot about the dangers of lockdown drills, which have become a, a billion dollar industry, that they cause anxiety and depression and sleeplessness and worsening school performance. Data shows that. And yet we're putting our children through these drills starting in preschool and the impact of that, I think will have reverberations for generations to come. And, you know, Sharon, I think you raise another important point, which is when I started Moms Demand Action, I was a white suburban mom who was afraid her kids weren't safe in their schools. Mass shootings, school shootings, that's about 1% of the gun violence in this country. And black and brown women in particular have been doing this work with little to no attention for decades, literally putting their physical bodies on streets in their communities to stop bullets. And I think what is so important about this movement now is that we understand that whether it's gun homicides or gun suicides or domestic gun violence or unintentional shootings, all of it matters. It all has to be addressed. And it is all part of the trauma that is tearing at the fabric of our communities. We knew even before COVID started that about 4.6 million American children and teens lived in homes with unsecured guns. About 50 million guns have been sold in the last year alone, so surely that number has grown and and we're doing the research and, and parsing through the data now, but Make no mistake, we have similar rates of mental illness in this country, similar rates of suicide attempts in this country. What makes suicide so lethal in America compared to other peer nations is easy access to guns.
0: That's an amazing statistic.
2: It is staggering when you think about the fact that in other high-income countries, when people attempt suicide, it is often not fatal. And when they are given another chance and they seek help, they do not attempt suicide again. In America, suicides are about 90% fatal because it's almost often with a gun.
0: You know, I wanna ask you another statistic. You may or may not have it before I come back to meditation. I know somebody who's in the NRA, he's a gun sportsman, a gun enthusiast, and he's a supporter of yours too. <laughs> I wonder how many people in the NRA actually do want gun safety laws and they're feeling the heat of the people who run the NRA, but they themselves understand the need. Have you had much contact with those people?
2: Frank Luntz is a Republican pollster. He polls on a wide variety of issues and he actually did a poll of NRA members a few years ago. And what he found is about 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws like a background check on every gun sale. 74% is pretty large, but it's also important to remember that mainstream polling shows gun owners and only one in 10 of whom even belongs to the NRA support common sense gun laws. So this has huge consensus among the American public. The only place right now where this is a polarizing issue is in the US Senate. And when you have conversations with your friends or family members, you most often find common ground. We all want to keep guns out of the hands of people who are a risk to themselves or others. There are very few people who are extremists who believe it's not worth it that that somehow the price of freedom is our death. As those, of the Second Amendment is a suicide pact. That is a small minority of Americans.
0: You know, I imagine all of the stress and the frustration that can come with doing work like this. How is it that you found Ethan Nick Turner?
2: Yeah, you know, I read Ethan's book. It was one that compared Buddhism to the Princess Bride. And we started following one another on Twitter and having conversations. And I was signed up for his mailing list. And I got this email that said he was going to have a class once a week for a year, where he would, you know, go through the basics of Buddhism, and then some. And you know, during COVID especially, it was a place to gather with other people because I can't go to Spirit Rock or some of the other places that are near where I live and, and have that sense of community. And, you know, breakout rooms on Zoom aren't quite as fulfilling as sitting at a table or in a group of real people in real life. But I, I have found it to be really rewarding and educational, and I highly recommend, you know, no matter how much you know or, or think you know about Buddhism. It's so important to have a teacher and to, I think, constantly be learning.
1: Well, you had said that you were initially really motivated by anger, which was a very interesting and I think natural and common kind of response. And it is a more delicate a task to utilize the anger and channel the anger rather than be consumed by it or overwhelmed by it. And, you know, listening to you, I've been thinking oddly enough about Fred Gutenberg's book. Fred had his daughter... I'm trying not to say lost his daughter because I've been corrected about that. You know, they didn't lose them like a package. They
2: were stolen.
1: They were stolen. They were killed. His daughter was killed in Parkland and he's very active in trying to make change. And his book came out this last year and it was based on a rather famous quotation of Mr. Rogers asking his mother, I think when he was a child, about some dreadful circumstance or catastrophe. And his mother said, look for the helpers. And so the book is called something like find the helpers. And someone asked Fred in an interview, why he named it that. And he said, cause so much love came our way and it was so important and it really kept us going. And so listening to you, I've been thinking, well, this is a face of love. You are clearly one of the helpers and, and a massive influence on a lot of people and
2: I think anger is such an interesting discussion, especially around the context of Buddhism, because it can be like poison. It can be toxic. And I'm certainly tempted a lot to let that anger come out as meanness or as hostility. There's certainly plenty of times I write a tweet and then delete it because there is no place for ad hominem attacks or not being kind. I mean, that's when your anger is not helpful. That is when your anger becomes hurtful to other people or to yourself. And what I strive to do, and I certainly fail along the way, but I want my anger to be motivation for positive change. And I think when you can use it that way, then it's truly a tool and I think it is my personality to be angry. <laughs> and so to, to <laughs> have that anger be a fuel for positive change, and if I can channel it that way, then it becomes helpful.
0: Has your practice changed at all the way you view leadership in the NRA, how, however odious we think their actions may be? Has it changed how you view them? One of our producers, Julia Hirsch, was asking whether you were familiar with the practice, everyone at some point or another was our mother.
2: Yes. And Ethan talks about this a lot too, particularly during the Trump years, it is sometimes very difficult to have compassion for people who seem like textbook villains, people who seem like not only are they allowing death and destruction, but they're actually cultivating it and promoting it gleefully. And I do feel like that can be a real strain on finding compassion for humankind. And so, you know, when I'm doing loving kindness, and, you know, you can do that sometimes for your enemies, I will say that there are times, you know, I'm picturing Wayne LaPierre.
1: That's bold and brave. (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) No, this is because, you know, one of the principles of loving kindness, we always say, is to do it in the easiest way possible because what we need to come to is like an embodied understanding. Like what can it possibly mean? First of all, to say, have compassion for yourself as well as someone else or to have loving kindness or compassion for them. And with everything in you determined to fight their agenda and guard against their actions. And sometimes I feel like I don't even have the words to describe that place, but I know it's a felt sense. We get there and it takes time and, so they say, well, maybe don't start with the hardest person in the world. Like
2: I didn't start with way okay. Up there. Good. <laughs> I, did, I had to build up.
1: Yeah, build up. <laughs> Make your way there slowly.
0: Yeah, I have to say I was on a meta retreat once with Sharon and and Sharon, you gave that advice. Of course I began with the most difficult person because it felt like a challenge and I, I failed miserably.
1: Well, you have to tell Shannon how you got <laughs> to the meta retreat. <laughs> oh, right. If you don't mind. <laughs> no, this is a little embarrassing, but I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: I was very, very, very angry with somebody, and I think I'd complained about this person to Sharon a few times, and I finally wrote to Sharon, and I said, I had a dream he was run over by a car, and (laughs) Sharon didn't answer. She just sent me the dates for her meta retreat.
2: (laughs) We should say meta means loving kindness. Yeah, meta means loving kindness. Also, let's be clear. A dream is different than like a a daydream. Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it might have been a daydream too, but, you know, but it was bad enough. And so when I was at the retreat, people were talking. They were saying, Why are you coming to a meta retreat? I used to go to the retreat with Sharon and Joseph, the Insight retreat. And I would tell them that story. And before I knew it, everybody at the retreat knew the story. They began repeating it. So there's no concealing it anymore. But one thing I found particularly helpful, and I wonder if you do too, Shannon, is that both Joseph Goldstein and Sharon told me, You know, why don't you start by saying, may they be free of anger, greed, Mm -hmm. and delusion. And that's not a hard thing to wish for. That was a start for me. I I moved to an easier person and I began to just wish that they'd be free because why not? Wouldn't I be better off? Wouldn't they be better off? Because the thought of generating uh, feelings of goodwill toward that person felt too challenging. So that was a great way to start. And I think
2: uh, this was another thing Ethan said, which is, thank you for being a great teacher.
1: (laughs) Mm
0: Right. Right.
2: Because
1: what I've discovered, you know, is that if I sit with anger, my own anger, and I just watch the play of emotions that are really making up that anger, you know, the fear, the sadness, everything, I virtually always come to this kernel of feeling helpless. And that's the real source of the kind of massive rage. And once I get there, then I know what to do, which is anything. Like, just take an action, even if it seems very small even if it's not going to solve the big problem you know just do it you have to do something and and that's channeling the energy because that hopelessness i think is the most corrosive thing we can feel and it's, it's unbearable for such a for great us.
2: point there are so many times where i think people don't get involved in activism not just on this issue on any issue because they feel like they can't make a difference and we actually have a term in our organization called naptivism which is you know, here's something you can do while your kid is taking a nap. You may only have 30 minutes, but you can use a hashtag. You can send an email. You can make a phone call, right? You can do those things. Activism is like drips on a rock. I wish the system in this country was set up for wholesale overnight change. It is not. It is set up for incrementalism, and that is frustrating. Incrementalism has become sort of a dirty word. But if you don't show up to make those changes, then change never happens. And in fact, I think you could argue that incrementalism in this country is often what leads to revolutions. Marriage equality. When I was younger, it felt like that would never happen. And I have a daughter who's gay, and she has no idea there was this long fight. She thinks it happened overnight, right? But it was years and years (laughs) of activists on the ground Mm -hmm. making that change happen. I don't think gun violence will be any different than that that one day it will seem like it's happening overnight and there will be federal laws. And all of it matters, it is all based on us getting off the sidelines, right? Each of us doing our own part. And and just very quickly, there's a story that that resonated with me where there was this woman in her community, she was covered by a local newspaper and she would make sandwiches for people who were homeless. And they interviewed her and, and she said, you know what, people reach out to me all the time and they say, here's some donations to make more sandwiches. Or they call me to say, thank you for making sandwiches. And you know what I want to say to them? Make your own damn sandwiches. Like if we all made sandwiches, there wouldn't be hungry people. And so I think we all need to make our own sandwiches.
0: You know, when you said naptivism, I thought you were going to advise people to take a nap, (laughs) which is more like what I would would do, but you don't seem like the kind of person. Well, that's (laughs) back in the (laughs) self-care section. You don't seem like a person who takes a nap, though. It's just remarkable how much you've accomplished in such a relatively short period of time. Why don't you say something about your book, Fight Like a Mother?
2: I really wrote it for three reasons. First, I wanted it to be part memoir. You know, what has it been like being the tip of the spear, particularly as a woman on such a volatile issue in this country? The other was to be part manual. I get asked all the time, how did you do this? Because I think there are people who want to do this on a completely different issue in their own community or their state. And the final reason was to be part manifesto. I really want to encourage women to run for office in this country. Our volunteers are running for office at a growing rate. I'm so excited to see that. I see that as kind of mom's 2.0 that we will train and encourage our volunteers and gun violence survivors to run for office, any office, everything from city council to Congress. We had 100 Moms Demand Action volunteers run in the last election cycle, 43 won, which is a a pretty outstanding win rate. We now have two members of Congress who were Moms Demand Action volunteers. So I really do think there is a moral imperative in this country for women to have a seat at the table. And as the the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. You know, I was just this random woman from Indianapolis, but because of our brilliant volunteers, because of this supportive network all across the country, you know, we have become the largest grassroots movement in the country. And I do think it's testament to women supporting women. And when I started Moms Demand Action, you know, I was in my early forties, I'm 50 now. But I also think it shows that, you know, you don't have to be young. You don't have to be a man, that women have a lot of power that they can tap into and and force real change.
1: Sharon? Well, some of my friends in the marriage equality movement made a point of telling me, because I'd say, how did you work that long? You know, how did you do it? And And they'd say, I wanted to put a win on the table every day. And that could look different every day. And it might seem small in the eyes of some. It could be a good editorial. It could be a conversation with somebody where a gay person got humanized in their eyes. But every day to actually bring it to life, to do something. And I guess a win may not always look like great triumph, you know, but that you really put your heart into it and that you showed up yourself.
2: And I think that's really important. Agreed. Drips on a rock. That's our motto.
0: Right. It also took a lot of learning from losing, (laughs) you know. know. So Shannon, it's been wonderful talking to you. Sharon, do you have anything else to say?
1: I'm just I and inspired and and energized. And that's a great feeling in terms of, you know, I think I'll do something now. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) I feel the same way. Let me just do something. (laughs) Call your senators and tell them you support background checks.
0: Yeah. And also buy the book, Fight Like a Mother. Yes. A all book.
2: proceeds go to gun violence prevention organizations.
0: Couldn't think of a better book to buy. Well, I can't think of a better way to close than a meditation from Sharon Salzberg, which always puts me at my ease. Sharon?
1: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm totally honored to be able to do that. And I've had so many feelings in this conversation and so much wish for a better world So why don't we sit together just for a few minutes and integrate whatever we may be feeling and and hold all of it in some space of loving kindness. So if you could just sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, wherever you feel most at ease. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. See if you can feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space and we think about like picking up a finger and poking it in the air, but space is always touching us. It's already touching us. We just need to receive it. And take a breath, which is really like the gift of life See if you can find that place where the breath is clearest for you or strongest for you as you let the breath become natural, nostrils, chest, or abdomen, and bring your attention there and just rest. You don't have to improve anything in that moment, you don't have to change anything in that moment. We're just resting. Notice whatever emotions you're feeling right now, what's predominant. Acknowledge it, recognize it, allow it to be there. And I'd say, given the discussion that we've just had, if you were going to form an intention for finding meaning in your life or for making a difference, what would it be? Just see what arises for you. Then I'm going to challenge you, make it a little bigger. We can spend just a couple of minutes. Remembering those who've helped us, whoever they are, whoever comes to mind. Maybe they helped us listen to this, you know, or a long time ago they inspired us. Maybe we never even met them. Just see who comes to mind and repeat whatever phrases make sense to you as an offering, as gift giving. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease of heart, whatever it might be. And those whom you know are struggling, who seem to feel alone. We're hurting. We'll make that same offering to them. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And then all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Sharon and Shannon Watts. You're a huge inspiration. And thank you for joining Sharon and me.
2: It's an honor, honestly. I I love this podcast so much. And both of you uh, so grateful for the work you're doing.
0: You've been listening to Shannon Watts and Sharon Salzberg here on Tricycle Talks. Our next episode will air in two weeks when Andy Rotman, a scholar of Asian religions, takes us on a tour of the Buddhist cosmos to show us what hungry ghosts can teach us about greed, attachment, and compassion. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest and Julia Hirsch with help from Amanda Lim Patton and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, editor-in-chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.